and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News Chief Washington Correspondent Jonathan Carl. And I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. Big news, big news today, and you know there's big news today. We also have uh, our own Mary Bruce uh, waiting in the wings, joining us in just a moment. But you know what the big news is. I think, um, it, is, it, is it a big interview? No, wait, it's bigger than that, right? It's bigger than that. Oh, it's bigger than that. Bigger well, than it, that. And, and, and I shouldn't say there's a couple things. Yeah, there is, there is, of course, you know, George Stephanopoulos had an incredible interview with Joe Biden, but, but there's something bigger. I want to get to a bookstore today. Something's telling me I want to go shopping. Am I going to find anything? The paperback version of Front Row at the Trump Show is out now. It is out today. Brand new, whole new afterward with the big events of the past year. Some blockbuster stories I'm going to show. I'm going to share with you. I'm going to share with you right here on the Powerhouse Politics Podcast. The only reason I knew is because I've seen you like on The View and MSNBC, and, and you're like you're making the rounds. It's pretty cool. It's pretty good. Big, big John Carl week. I'm saving the big stuff. I'm saving the big stuff for the podcast. Nice. Okay, you know we would do that. But, but before, but so, so let's. That's the tease. We're going to come back to that. Uh, I. I I want to get to uh, this interview, and it was a, a incredibly newsy interview. I guess this is what happens when you have a president who has yet to do a press conference, uh, isn't exactly going around and doing, you know, he's not calling into Maria Bartiromo on, uh, on Fox News. He's not doing a lot of interviews. He is, you know, so this, this, is, this was a big interview with some big news, and I wanted to see if we could get a really good White House correspondent to help us kind of get through it all. I think we have Mary Bruce on the line. Is that right, Mary? Hello. Mary Bruce. So good to have you on. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're 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 excited to have you and I uh, you know this I mean you must be like blown away. We've got some news out of the Biden White House. I thought the president is answering questions. I mean It's amazing. I mean, and really newsy questions at that. I mean, this is just wild. So let's get to I, I, look we, we 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 have a series of of segments of this, excerpts from this interview, and I thought we'd get right to what he said about Vladimir Putin, because it, it did sounded a little bit different from the message that we had been hearing uh, from Donald Trump on Putin. So let, let's, let, let's, let's tee this up. This is uh, George and Joe Biden talking about Putin. We had a long talk, he and I. We've, I, I know him relatively well. And I, the conversation started off. I said, I know you and you know me. If I establish this occurred, then be prepared. You said you know he doesn't have a soul. I did say that to him, yes. And, to, and his response was, we understand one another. I wasn't being a wise guy. I was alone with him in his office. That's how it came about. It was when President Bush had said, I've looked in his eyes and saw a soul. I said, looked in your eyes, and I don't think you have a soul. And looked back at me and said, we understand each other. Look, most important thing dealing with foreign leaders, in my experience, and I've dealt with an awful lot of them over my career, is just know the other guy. So you know Vladimir Putin. You think he's a killer? Mm-hmm. I do. I, I, I like the mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a killer. Mm-hmm. How casual, yeah. You know, this, this question, actually, a variation of this question came up with Trump, and, and, and the, the, you know, the... It was really a question about the, you know Putin killing killing these journalists, and if, as I recall, I don't have the exact exchange, but you remember, he basically said, "Well, we kill a lot of people too." I mean, it was kind of like, "Yeah, he does some bad stuff. We do some bad stuff. It's all cool." But um, I, I thought that was interesting. I guess Mary, that first that first uh, summit meeting uh, with Putin, whenever it happens, is going to be an interesting one. Uh, yeah, and with a much different tone, clearly. I, I, what I love about that is, is Biden saying, you know, I said you don't have a soul, and he's like, we agree. We 
we're on the same page here. I get where you're coming <laughs> from. He's not even disputing that. I think, you know, the real question now is, is obviously what is Biden going to do about it? And of course, you know, George was also asking him about uh, now the intelligence assessment, which, which found what we all pretty much knew that, that Russia, of course, did meddle in the 2020 election uh, with the aim of, of denigrating the, the assessment found, denigrating Biden's candidacy. And Biden says, yeah, look, he's going to pay for this. Uh, well, what does that look like, right? So he's sort of putting Putin on notice. Uh, what comes next? How chilly will that first meeting be? Uh, still remains to be seen. That that was, I mean, first of all, I do we know, Rick, do you know, does does Putin have a soul? I mean, have we... Oh, I guess he's confirming that, that he does it. I, you know, it, it, it seems like a, a, a too perfect anecdote. <laughs> for, I mean, do do for, we really uh, think he leaned in and said, you don't have a soul? And Putin uh, said, well, we understand each other. Yeah, <laughs> I, I love it. It's the, the Hollywood version, that's, which is often the Biden version, is like a little, a, little too, a little too pat. But obviously, he's, you know, he's taking all of this very seriously. And yeah, he's calling the guy a killer. You know, now let's talk. So <laughs> now let's talk. You know, he, he, he had an interesting um, thing to say about Republicans as well. Um, I mean, I'm not, you know, Republicans, it's a different subject. Um, it's a different subject, subject not the killers. Subject. <laughs> but, you know, you know, Biden, Biden had, you know, the, the kind of the kind of suggestion of his campaign through the transition is that Republicans were going to have this kind of epiphany and that he's going to be able to work with them. There was a lot of talk going into the uh, the inauguration uh, when we weren't talking about things like insurrections, uh, that, that he was, you know, that Biden uh, has known McConnell for a long time, developed a good relationship with him when, when Biden was vice president. We were going to be off to this kind of, you know, new era of potentially of bipartisan accomplishments. I don't think anybody really, you know, thought this was, uh, you know, necessarily going to happen. But but Biden seemed to. Uh, but here's what he said about that, uh, that, that, that Republican epiphany. I'm not saying this is going to be easy, George, but I do believe there's enough Republicans over time who are going to have, look, you, you, they haven't had that epiphany you said you were going to see in the campaign. No, no. Well, I've only been here six weeks, pal. Okay. Give me a break. <laughs> been here six weeks. I think the epiphany is going to come in 20, between now and 2022. This is one, there's 78% of the people say they support this program. 52% of Republicans. Let's assume it's off by 15%. You're going to go home and campaign. Republican voters want that $1,500 because they're in trouble. Republican voters want to be able to choose between being able to send their, go to work and send their kid to a, a daycare that they can afford. Republican voters want to be able to take care of a child care tax credit. And that's why they're, that's why the Biden White House has been saying this is this is a bipartisan bill. I mean, it has no Republican support and get any votes. Uh, but 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 right, not but, voters. Yeah, yeah, not, not, not the people not that vote on the bill, but uh, but but the, the you know surprise surprise the the public opinion polls seem to suggest that uh, that people like the idea of having uh, checks sent to them from the federal government. So, but but let me ask you first of all, and 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 Rick, maybe you can take this. I, help me with the math. He said, give me a break. Uh, I've been here six weeks. I've been here six weeks, pal. I mean, time is going a little slower these days, but it, <laughs> it's a little, I think it's closer to eight weeks. It, it feels, do, do that, help me with the math. You went to one of those fancy yeah. Ivy League colleges. How, how long has it been? It's what, closer to eight weeks. Uh, maybe if you take the impeachment week okay. out of there, you know, and you know, he's been, he's been in Delaware a lot. So if you're, you know, you know, <laughs> Here is kind of a you know depends on the what what the meaning of the word here is I suppose but but I, look I, I I think six weeks 
eight weeks has probably been enough to teach a, a much different lesson to almost any other Democrat you talk to. Um, I think you know if they couldn't get a single Republican voting for $1.9 trillion to support COVID-19, where are those votes going to come on immigration or infrastructure with 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 pay fors with taxes? I, I mean, that's the epiphany. I, I, you know, keep waiting, man. Twenty twenty two is very close. Uh, I don't know, Mary. What do you think? Is it is is he the last Democrat around who thinks Republicans are going to see the see the Biden light? Uh, he might be, because um, you do certainly have to go back and look at what has happened in those last six um, eight weeks or so. Uh, because it certainly has sent a very different message to Capitol Hill than the one that, that candidate Biden was promising, right? I mean, uh, we've asked the White House this a million times. What happened to unity, right? And they'll say, well, he didn't promise to unite Washington. He promised to unite the country. Well, yes and no, right? Uh, candidate Biden did promise to work across the aisle. And I do genuinely think, especially when it comes to negotiating this huge stimulus bill, that Republicans really did think there was going to be some more actual to some negotiations. And straight out the gate, it became pretty clear, you know, President Biden's not playing like that, right? There was not that wiggle room uh, and real earnest negotiations. I mean, sure, he heard them out. He was like, those are some, you know, thank you for playing, but no, I'm going to stick with what I want. Uh, you know, he had to make some concessions just to keep his own party united. But it sent a real, I think, you know, shot across the bow in many ways to Republicans who thought that perhaps there was going to be a return to some of that previous bipartisanship that the, the candidate Biden had had talked of so often. You know, the White House insists that it will be voters who drive Republican lawmakers to come around on some of these issues. And sure, this is a popular bill. You know, people like $1,400 checks. 41% of Republicans, uh, according to one poll, you know, support this legislation. That's a different story, though, when you go about, you know, when you talk about doing you know, big climate change bill in you know taxes, raising taxes, uh, doing an immigration plan, you know, even infrastructure, which has become such a joke in Washington in many ways uh, as the long sought after infrastructure plan. You know, I just think even issues where Republicans may be able to get on board with Democrats, are they as willing? Maybe not. So I think it, it sends a very different message. And speaking of that different tone, I mean, elsewhere in the interview, you know, we've seen the pressure growing from outside the White House on the filibuster, on filibuster yeah. reform, changing those Senate rules. Joe Biden knows a thing or two about Senate rules. He was a senator for longer than six weeks, let's say. Um, and it's so, you know, George asked the question directly. Listen to this. I know you've been reluctant to do away with the filibuster. Aren't you going to have to choose between preserving the filibuster and advancing your agenda? Yes. But here's the choice. I don't think you have to eliminate the filibuster. You have to do it what it used to be when I first got to the Senate and back in the old days when you used to be around there. And that is that a filibuster, you had to stand up and command the floor. And you had to keep talking alone. You couldn't call for, you know, they, no, no one could say, you know, quorum call. Once you stopped talking, you lost that and someone could move in and say, I moved the question of. So you got to work for the filibuster. So you're for that reform. You're for bringing back the talking filibuster. I am. That's what it was supposed to be. So, John, you know, I think you were around the Senate back in those days where they had to talk to, if we want to think about those 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 good old days. But uh, he doesn't quite explain it, I think, fully accurately. I mean, you can you can hand off to other members. It doesn't just have to be one member who's speaking nonstop. If you have friends, you also would grind business to an absolute halt, potentially. Um, and, and you're still not changing the 60-vote threshold. To be clear, when people talk about the nuclear option really changing Senate rules, the, the, the filibuster reform efforts are about making it 50 votes instead of instead of 60. But 
this advances the conversation pretty substantially, don't you think, John? Uh, it, it does, and and you know one one of the potential rule changes under discussion is that uh, it would be you know it takes two thirds to end the filibuster, two thirds of those present and voting, so it wouldn't be a sixty vote thing, but they'd have to you know the the, the people would have to be close to the Senate floor to come in uh, you know for for the vote. So, but but look, I, it, it is a big step, and he did say it's the that the, the whole thing, like you said the question it, you're you're. The question is, do you have to choose basically between the filibuster and, and your agenda? And the fact that he is seeing it that way uh, is significant. But, you know, Rick, the other thing to consider here is that the reason we went to these votes, these, you know, we'll, we'll just, you know, we have the, the so-called cloture vote. We get, do we have the 60 votes? We do, we don't. Was so that the Senate could go on to uh, do other business. I mean, if you're going to, if you're really going to do what he's saying, then these, you know, there there will be, and and you know, you, you could easily have forty one uh, Republicans uh, wanting to stymie the agenda and sticking around. You can really tie the Senate up, um, and so I'm not sure it necessarily accomplishes what he wants. The other thing that's interesting, though, is what he said is basically exactly what Joe Manchin said. You know, Joe Manchin was is, is the person we've all been looking at, and 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 Senator Cinema of Arizona have both said that they don't want to. Uh, eliminate the filibuster, but it was Manchin who said, but I would be in favor of going back, making it more painful to invoke and forcing people to be here, to speak it out, and not just, you know, uh, having this 60-vote this, this threshold. We don't know if, if Senator Cinema is in agreement with Manchin on that. So there still are some questions. What's your sense on this, Mary? You, you've, you've, you've spent some time up on Capitol Hill. Well, it's just clear that Joe Biden sees the reality that he's facing, right, that the Senate is going to get in the way of his agenda. And he's got to do something to try and satisfy both the progressives and the moderates uh, on this issue. And so he's trying to find that middle ground, um, that that return to the Mr. Smith goes to Washington version of the filibuster, you know, giving dissenting members, having them verbally speak on the floor in order to delay any action on a bill. I, I, to your point, I, yeah, I don't know if it's going to get him ultimately what he wants, but it may get him. Uh, you know, may satisfy some of those members who he desperately needs. Um, it's also really going to annoy Republicans. I mean, you heard what did, what did Mitch McConnell say? If you nuke the filibuster, you're going to have a hundred car pile up on the Senate floor. Uh, there may be some truth to that, but this is Joe Biden looking for middle ground. I think what's also surprising, though, is you think of Joe Biden. This is a man who relishes in the institution of Congress. Uh, he's long opposed getting rid of the filibuster. And so even just to see him reach, you know, this kind of compromise here to try and satisfy some in his own party is significant, just knowing Joe Biden. One other news item from this this interview that that I want to get to, guys, uh, involves the, the governor of New York. Oh, uh, uh, yeah. You remember that? You remember him? He's still there. Uh, you know, uh, Joe Biden's not from New York, unlike some others who've weighed in on it. But uh, listen to how George handled this. If the investigation confirms the claims of the women, should he resign? Yes. I think he'd probably end up being prosecuted, too. But you, how about right now? You've said you want the investigation to continue. You saw uh, Chuck Schumer, Senator Schumer, Senator Gillibrand, majority of the congressional delegation don't think he can be an effective governor. Right now, can he serve well, effectively? Well, that's a judgment for them to make about their state where they can be effective. Here's my position. It's been my position since I wrote the Violence Against Women Act. A woman should be presumed to telling the truth and should not be scapegoated and become victimized by her coming forward, number one. But there should be an investigation to determine whether what she says is true. 
That's what's going on now. And I, you've been very clear. If the investigator say, confirms the claims, he's gone. That's what I think happens. So, John, I'm going to ask you, savvy political mind that you are, did, did, did Joe Biden pull a punch or did he just pull out the long knife for Governor Cuomo? I mean, it looks like he did both, right? First, he pulled the punch because it's let the investigation go forward. That's what that that's the line from Cuomo's quasi allies and from Cuomo himself, you know, in response to those that wanted to respond now. But then he then he lowered the boom, uh, you know, invoking without George mentioning it or raising it, uh, invoking the idea uh, that not only may Cuomo be forced from office, but he may face criminal prosecution. That was, uh, I mean, as I'm listening, I'm like, oh, wow, so he's okay. So, you know, I mean, he's, Cuomo's been an ally. He even thought about him as a possible attorney general, et cetera, et cetera. He called him the gold standard in terms of uh, leadership of the governors and handling the pandemic. You know, so he's pulling a punch, but boom, he invokes that criminal prosecution. And, and Mary, this has been this has been a distraction for for this for this White House for some time. They don't want to be dealing with this very clearly. No, they've they've avoided giving a straight answer on this for you know days and days and days. I mean, the president clearly knew this was coming, right? He knew this question was, was I'm sure going to be on George's mind, and he was. I, I was surprised at how definitive he was on some of this. You know, obviously he's trying to say, look, that's up to the state to decide. You know, whether he can be an effective governor right now. But I think you do have to remember Joe Biden's history here. This is an issue that he feels extremely strongly about. You know, when he reminds everyone, you know, again and again, that he wrote the Violence Against Women's Act and, and you know, that he believes that women should always be presumed to be telling the truth. This is something that he is extremely passionate about. And so while he is trying to give an answer that politically gives him some room here, um, he's also sending a very uh, harsh message uh, to, to, to Governor Cuomo. No doubt, no doubt about that. So, Mary, let me let me ask you. Let, let, let's turn to the other question that's been uh, raised quite a bit over at the Biden White House. That is, now we saw him answering a lot of questions from George. Haven't seen him seeing, and, and haven't seen him answering many questions from the White House press. You know, I mean, he takes the shouted question at a uh, you know at, at a photo op, which, as you and I both know, is not the same. But we have a press conference on the books. We have one on the books, finally. You know, I think we, we went back and, and looked in, through the old archives, and, I mean, it has been – this is like the longest a president in modern history has gone without, without a formal press conference. Yes, he's answered sort of one-off questions in the Oval Office, but to not do, you know, a true White House press conference engaging with the press corps for this long – is pretty remarkable. It's also kind of remarkable that now they've outlined a date for, for March 25th. So next week in the afternoon, march your, mark your calendars, March 25th is the date. Um, they're kind of building it up. You know, I can't remember the last time we had this much heads up for a press conference either. I think it's um, almost never. Seem, <laughs> never, <laughs> never. I know, right? How many times, John, did, were you all sent scrambling because the Trump administration announced that they'd be doing one in, you know, five minutes? But the White House simply feels that they haven't had to do this. I mean, even during the campaign, even when we were under, you know, much sort of stricter COVID requirements, he still was talking to us once a week. We would go up to Wilmington, sit in those little, you know, socially distant circles in a high school gymnasium and ask him questions. But back then, they felt he needed to be speaking to the press much more than he does now. And they also, certainly as they have been out there pushing uh, to, to pitch and sell uh, his relief plan, 
they didn't want that to be overshadowed by, you know, a lot of questions about immigration reform, which certainly is already overshadowing uh, much of their effort to sell this bill. So they figured, okay, we'll wait until we get this bill through. We've done our campaign to pitch this. Okay, fine. Then we'll let you pesky reporters in to ask some questions. But, you know, this communications team uh, carefully manages Joe Biden. You know, let's be honest, this is a man who's known to, to go uh, to speak off the cuff sometimes, uh, gaff prone, uh, as others might say. So I think they are choosing carefully uh, not just who, who he speaks to, but also when, clearly, he speaks to us as well. Well, there are dangers to announcing a press conference more than a week in advance. And Dana Perino, who served as George W. Bush's press secretary, uh, said that that was one thing. You might plan to have a press conference more than a week in advance, but you certainly don't announce it. No. The risk is, who the heck knows what's going on that day? I mean, you may, um, you know, I mean, you may not want to do it that day. I mean, so anyway, but uh, but it's good. It's on the books. We'll You'll be it. there. You'll be there. We'll take it. You'll be there, Mary, and you were also you were also there yesterday for the other event that, that Joe Biden had. I, and I don't want to... I don't want to close without commenting on it because, you know, uh, it was pretty weird. Uh, Awkward. You know, the, the, this, was the, this was the launch of the big stimulus cell, president at a small business. You know, we're, we were expecting, I don't know, something. But uh, take, take a brief listen to some of what we got. But you really made it work. And I think you should be aware more help is on the way for real. Your questions for me at all? <laughs> I mean, wow. Uh, uh, maybe it's, uh, what was going on with this, it Mary? Was, I mean, uh, I, I, it was it just it just seems so strange. It was a little bizarre, right? I mean, and certainly yesterday was the first time the president had traveled outside of Washington to sell this bill, right? He's 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 outside of Philadelphia in Pennsylvania, talking you know to to a very small small business owners, minority owned business, and this was a chance for him to you know come out, get out. First of all, just speak to some real Americans about this bill, tout how it's going to be impacting them. The whole day was supposed to be focused on the small business components of this relief bill. You know, I don't know, maybe look around the shop a little bit, give some remarks. The whole thing, I think, was less than five minutes. You know, they fired up the big bird, flew all the way up to Pennsylvania. And it's just it was I mean, you, you could blink and miss it. There were no formal remarks. There was no real interaction um, with the business owners, except to sort of say, "Hey, you got any questions for me?" And you know, obviously, they praised the bill and thanked you know the president for for his efforts to help them out financially. But in terms of you know promising a big sales pitch in this campaign, it kind of landed with a thud. That said, on the flip side, of course, you know, the president has given many speeches in the last several days touting this bill. He's got his vice president, the first lady, the second gentleman. Everybody's fanned out across the country, sort of promoting this bill. But it just, I don't know, it didn't seem to meet the moment. It certainly wasn't as it was billed. It was just a bit bizarre. And Joe Biden really likes getting out and talking to people. You know, that's something he's, he's commented on missing a lot, especially during the pandemic and being kind of shut in the White House. So I don't know. The whole thing was just a little odd. He was clearly <laughs> still thinking about his interview with George Stephanopoulos. I think, yes, we, we, that's it. George got in his head. <laughs> All right. The great Mary Bruce, thank you for coming on Powerhouse Politics. Please pull up a chair anytime here at the podcast. We're gonna take a quick break. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to Powerhouse Politics. I am pleased to be joined 
by a man who needs no introduction to this audience. Can I, I hope open, not. I, I, mean, I guess yeah. I need to know. I, <laughs> we got a problem. If so, uh, John Carl, the author of the book, Front Row at the Trump Show, now available in paperback with updated reporting, new information, a brand new afterword, a new author's note. All of it is going to make it must buy. John, is this an exclusive interview for, for like, in the podcast space? At least what can we what can we build this as? Dude, this is an exclusive interview in the podcast. There is no okay. other ABC News podcast hosted by Rick Klein and they did they, 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 is, has this interview? This that is has it. this interview. All right, good. good. Yeah. This is so. This is the big get. So, let, all right. So you had you had. I remember at the time, John, your book comes out, and I thought you either had the worst timing in the world or the best timing in the world because it came out like like right right when COVID hit. Right. So yeah. you had done all this reporting, all this work on all your years with Trump, and then the world changes, and then the front row with the Trump show that you were in became a really, really interesting place, not just for political junkies, but for anyone watching everything. And those briefings were absolute classics. So, you know, you go back and you tell a lot of the history of the president's response to to COVID uh, from the perspective of that briefing room. You got a lot of really cool information in there. But I, I want to start with John the story that, uh, that, that that you talk about uh, the opportunity one of the, one of the last handshakes that you had actually was with President Trump. Yeah, this is really uh, this was really something, Rick. This is actually the date was March fourth, twenty twenty. So uh, almost exactly a year ago, it was the day after Super Tuesday. Uh, I had been with you up in New York to, for our election coverage on Super Tuesday. And I got an email um, saying that, that Trump wanted to meet with me that you know that next day, the Wednesday, and I so I raced back down to Washington. Um, came in, he wanted to meet with me. I, I brought along. I was told it was about the White House Correspondents' Dinner, which had been scheduled uh, uh, for for uh, April twenty eighth, I believe was was the date that we had we had scheduled it for. And there had been a lot of news about it because I had booked. Uh, Keenan Thompson of SNL was going to be our host, along with Hassan Minhaj of, uh, of of Netflix and the, and the Daily Show. And there, were, there was a lot of there was a lot of hype about about the White House Correspondents' Dinner coming back once again with entertainment and a comedian, not just one but two. We we had unveiled a big new award uh, funded by uh, with a donation from Jeff Bezos, named for Catherine Grant. There's a lot of stuff, but. One thing I had not done yet, Rick, was actually gotten around to inviting Donald Trump to come to the dinner. I mean, you know, after all, he had boycotted the thing for, uh, uh, you know, for the three previous years. But so I, I raced back. I, I grabbed my my two colleagues on the executive committee of the White House Correspondents Association, uh, Zeke Miller and Steve Portnoy. We went into the Oval Office. We were brought in by the then press secretary, Stephanie Grisham. And it's kind of like a scene that you read in the in, in the hardcover where at, at another meeting where, you know, we're brought in and then left there alone in the Oval Office. This happened again, left alone in the Oval Office as she went to get the president. And again, it's like it's like a long time moves so, so slowly when you are you are there. Uh, we sat down in the chairs opposite the resolute. Uh, and, and you want to like look at the papers? Yeah, like, you're like, like I mean, what's like going right on? <laughs> Clearly, we're being watched, right? Aren't we? I mean, you know, the microphones are hot. What's going on? What should we say? Should we give a little message for the National Archives? I mean, what what should we do? Um, he comes in, but but you know, first, just the context. Eight, March fourth was the day that California declared a state of emergency. Six people had already died in in one nursing home alone in in, in Seattle. 
um, you know, that, that, that first kind of major epicenter of, of COVID in, in the United States. And there was real concern. We hadn't really shut things down yet, but it was hand sanitizer. I remember I was so proud of myself for buying a bottle of hand sanitizer in New York before I came down because the stuff had flown off shelves. CDC was telling people not to shake hands, you know, be careful, maintain some distance. We, we, we were not at the mask mandate yet, all that, but we thought that the main way you could get this is through touch and then touching your, your, you know, your face. Uh, so we all, I, I said to, to, to Zeke and Steve, look, when the president comes in, you know, don't reach out your hand. You know, it, it's not fair to him. Uh, first of all, I just come back from New York. I've been traveling. I mean, I, I don't want to put him at risk. He's the president of the United States. We're not going to shake hands. He comes in and he looks at us, stands there. We stand up and says, so come on, guys. Uh, what do you think? Should we shake hands? And there's this awkward like pause and, and like it's up, it's up to you, Mr. President. Come on, what could I get from you? And he reaches out and he shakes my hand. And I, I, of course, reflexively shake his hand. It is the last hand that I shook in the year 2020. Um, <laughs> and, 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 there's, and there's just no, and, and this, this meeting was off the record, so I can't go into detail. I, I'm gonna try to ask him if I can put the rest of it on the record, because it was a very interesting meeting. But the other little piece of color I can tell you from the meeting is that in the midst of it, um, and we spent like an hour in the Oval Office with the president, um, Mike Pence walks in and he says, uh, sir, I've got an update. I've just been up on the Hill. I have an update on, uh, you know, coronavirus relief package, the very first COVID relief bill. And he had been up talking to members in the House and Senate about it. And I just want to give you a quick briefing. He says, oh, come on in, Mike, come on in. And then the president looks at us and says, here, you know, Mike's been at the hospital meeting with victims, meaning like coronavirus victims. Uh, you want to shake his hand? And I mean, it was, first of all, obviously he had not been at the hospital. He was on Capitol Hill, but it was, he was making light, making a joke um, about, you know, the precautions that people were taking at that point. And by the way, Pence, unlike the president, did not reach out his hand. <laughs> he he was listening meeting, to Fauci. And the, meeting, <laughs> and the meeting continued. What a, a remarkable window into how he was thinking about the crisis even that early. I mean, just that that kind of jocular mood, and you know, as, as we've seen with with others reporting, just not taking it seriously for a long time. You know, you also talk, John. You've got some reporting about uh, some of the discussions going on behind the scenes about what kind of aid the federal government can dole out. And uh, a question you remember early on, there was discussion about uh, some uh, some. Uh, Navy vessels that could be used as uh, as uh, floating hospitals right off the coast, and as you said, there were bad things going on in uh, on the West Coast at that time. So t take us inside the room for that conversation, uh, where where the president is trying to decide where to send a boat. Well, first of all, the, the Navy has two enormous hospital ships, the Comfort and the Mercy, and these are like these are like these are actual hospitals on the water, uh, really incredible uh, facilities. As you remember, uh, the Comfort had been sent to New York. Uh, and, and been up there to help deal with, 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 the, uh, with, with the surge in New York. So the question was what to do with the Mercy, which, is on, which was available to go to the other coast. And they were getting it ready, uh, just come back from a deployment. And uh, I am, you know, I, I learned of this meeting in the Oval Office 
again, not with me, somebody else who, who I, and I've spoken to somebody that was there, uh, where, where the president is having a meeting and Pence comes in and Pence gives, wants to give an update on the hospital ship, the, uh, the Mercy. And he says, the Mercy's just about ready to deploy. Uh, we can send it to, uh, to, to Washington State, which was the expectation. There had been some reporting, an announcement from the Navy that it was likely to go to Washington. Uh, or, you know, if, if we decide there's also, you know, we, we could send it to Los Angeles because, again, California, um, you know, was having, had declared an emergency as well. And, uh, you know, there, there was an argument for sending it to California. But the Navy had been preparing to send it to, to Washington. And, and Trump's listening to Pence and he says, wait a minute, why, why are you sending it to Washington? That jerk, you know, he's talking about Inslee. He calls Inslee a showboater and a jerk. Uh, Governor Inslee, uh, he's obviously somebody the president does not like. <laughs> and uh, he said, Gavin, Gavin, meaning Gavin Newsom, uh, the, the, the governor of California, he's been saying the nicest things about me. Uh, why, why don't we send it to, send it to California? Um, and at that point, I am told, and I report in, this, in the new version of the paperback, uh, the president yells out to the area just outside the Oval Office where his personal secretary is. He yells out, Molly, get Gavin on the phone. And a few minutes later, she says, Governor Newsom's on the line. The president puts it on speakerphone and in front of the people in the Oval Office, including the vice president, says, Gavin, we're just talking about the hospital ship. You know what? I mean, you don't think I should send it to that jerk in Washington, do you? I mean, I, I should send it to you, right? I mean, you, you've been saying the nicest things about me. And, you know, Gavin Newsom, to his credit, you know, doesn't, doesn't say, yeah, give me the ship. He says, look, I'm sure your team in the, in the Navy are going to make the, the, an assessment and send it wherever it can do the most good. And... The, he also and, knew he was probably being listened to. <laughs> well, <laughs> be careful well, with that, right? Well, for sure. And but here's the kicker to this: the ship ends up going not to Washington, but to Los Angeles. And as I said, the Navy had already, you know, put out notice that it was that it was headed to Washington. So, you know, did the president really do it to reward a, a friendly governor and punish an unfriendly governor? I, you know, I mean, you know, who, who knows? But. But the bottom line is that's what the president was saying they should do, and that's and the, and the ship did go to California, it went to Los Angeles. Remark, that's remar what a remarkable again a window into the thinking. Uh, one other one other scene I want to I want to take you inside of because John, I knew you you were not only our, our chief White House correspondent during this time, you're also uh, as you mentioned president of the White House Correspondents Association. So you're dealing with a lot of issues with reporters and reporters access. Uh, you report on an incident where uh, the the then press secretary. Uh, Stephanie Grisham had a an order from the president involving who can sit where, who should be sitting where in, in the in the press briefing room. Again, in the middle of all, the middle of of COVID. Tell us, tell us what happened. Well, th so so this is a briefing, and 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 it's on March twenty fifth. So you know things are bad. Uh, the government, you know, we we're, we're in that thirty days and then the fifteen days to stop the spread. Remember, we're we're basically shutting down uh, the country. And uh, the briefing begins, uh, one of those daily press briefings with the president. He speaks, he's got Burks there, he's got Fauci there, he has uh, Mnuchin there, because they're also talking about the economic relief component, and he's got Vice President Pence there. And then after about 40 minutes or so, the president says, I'm going to leave, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave Mike here 
vice president to, to, you know, to continue the briefing. And Trump leaves. So what I learn and what I report in this new paperback version of the book is Trump walks out of the briefing room and goes up to his press secretary's office, which, as you know, is just, you know, the other side of, you know, a couple doors and up, uh, you know, about, about 25, 50 yards. And he, and he goes into her office and he orders Stephanie Grisham, the then press secretary, to remove Caitlin Collins of CNN from the briefing room in the middle of the briefing. He says, go down there and get her out of there. I don't want Tele- her nationally in there. Nationally televised briefing. The briefing's going on. Nationally uh, televised. Millions of people watching. His vice president at the podium, flanked by the top health officials in the federal government. And he is demanding that his press secretary go and drag a reporter out of the briefing room. I mean, this would have been a scene out of, you know, God knows what. Like, it sounds like a, out, of a, out of a bad movie. Um, or of, like third world dictatorship. Yeah, third right? world, like, of, of, about a third world dictatorship, you know, remove in the middle of the, the thing. So Stephanie Grisham says, I, sir, I can't do that. I mean, you, you, you can't take a reporter out in the middle of, of the briefing. It's being televised. Um, and Trump erupts at her and says, that is because you are weak. You are worthless. And he storms out, and the briefing continues. And, and, and Caitlin Collins never knew that this had happened. I, I called her you know, shortly before the book came out to, to say, by the way, just to give you a heads up. Um, but uh, uh, really, really quite a scene. I ended up the very next day, I, didn't, I, I, I learned about this very soon after it happened. Um, uh, I, and the very next day, I get summoned to the press secretary's office for a meeting with the incoming chief of staff, Mark Meadows, and Stephanie Grisham. Now, Meadows was still at that point actually a member of Congress, but he'd been announced that he was replacing Mick Mulvaney as chief of staff. And in that meeting, they were demanding of me that, uh, that OAN, you know, the uh, One American News, the, the far-right, you know, conspiratorial... Uh, super pro-Trump, um, I don't, do you call it a news channel? A channel. That, uh, you know, please put them, put, put their reporter, who was Chanel Ryan at the time, uh, in the briefing room. And I said, look, I, you know, we have, a, we have a rotation. I mean, when their turn is up, they'll be in there. And, uh, but, you know, I mean, clearly the president was incredibly agitated. He didn't like going out. The, the news was getting worse about the, the pandemic. And we had so few seats in the briefing room because we had distancing. And on that day, with the Caitlin Collins thing, there was no Fox News reporter. There was no OAN reporter. He wasn't seeing friendly faces. And it clearly irritated him. And, and he had that outburst. It's just remarkable. And, and, and John, I, I recall in conversations with you and in, in reading your, your book when it came out a, a year ago, uh, you know, I thought some of the most poignant uh, observations you made had to do with the the assault on the truth, uh, the, the assault on, on on the press that that President Trump had been engaged in, and again, this was all before COVID and the campaign, and and of course, it was all before January sixth. I'm curious, John, as your friend, as a colleague, someone has a lot of respect for you and the work that you've done over the years. The, the the last the last acts of the Trump show, the final days and weeks, uh, 
leading up through January 6th and then through January 20th. What, what kind of thoughts did you have about, did you want to revise anything that you had said before? Where, where, where did you come down on final judgments around uh, the, the big issues around truth and uh, presidency and, and authority and, and, and interactions with the media? How did, how did Trump close out his show? Well, I, I addressed this question head on uh, in in what I wrote for the paper book and uh, paperback, and I had a chance to write this. I drove my publisher crazy. I, I kept on holding and holding. I said, I can't write yet. I can't write yet. You know, stuff is still happening as the president was challenging the election and all of that. And I, I started writing this, and I and I wrote I, I wrote it, and we were ready to go on January sixth. It was actually it was. It was about to be printed out. And I said, basically, it was my one time I actually said, stop the presses. I need to write more about what I've just witnessed and what has just taken down. So I, if you don't mind, I'm going to read you a, a little bit from this because um, I don't want to mess up my, my, own, my own account of this. Um, so in, in my afterword, I write, in the introduction of this book, I wrote, which I wrote before the disastrous events, of 2020, I, I posed this question. I think this is what you're referring to. This is from the, from the first version of the book. There are Trump supporters all over the country who look out at the, look at the outrage of the day, the offensive tweet, the rapid-fire untruths, and ask this, has Donald Trump made a mistake as profoundly damaging as the decision to invade Iraq to rid Saddam Hussein of weapons of mass destruction he didn't have? And then I write now, I say, at the time, it seemed like a question about which reasonable people could disagree. I concluded at the time that Trump's war on truth could ultimately do more damage to our nation than any of the mistakes made by his predecessors. But again, Rick, at that point, you know, he hadn't like gone to war over, uh, over something that, that was not factual. Uh, he hadn't Right. Which led to the, the loss of how many American, you know, American soldiers, uh, Iraqis. I mean, you know, they, they give the damage that happened in that one example. And there are obviously, I mean, you know, the, the mistakes made uh, by by Lyndon Johnson and Richard Nixon in Vietnam. I mean, the, the you know, had had Trump ever done had done something like that? So in 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 answering my question back then, I said, what is at stake? Uh, is the survival of our nation as a place where differing views are tolerated and debated, where election results are trusted and accepted. This is what I wrote back in, you know, more than a year before the election. Where people in power are held accountable and where truth is accepted even when it challenges our beliefs and our biases. So I, back then, had raised the possibility that, yes, even though we hadn't seen the tragedies that we had seen in Vietnam and Iraq, you know, in a way, the war on truth may ultimately be more costly. But then the events of 2020 showed vividly the profound costs of Donald Trump's relentless war on truth. You know, the, the, the fact that people couldn't believe what was being said about the pandemic. Uh, the, you know, the, the, the mistakes that were made that led uh, contributed to the fact that we had more than 500,000 Americans die. And then the events of January 6th. So, yes, I, I explore that question and, um, and uh, you know, I, I had been getting to, to, to a point where I'd been 
making the case that this could be as damaging as anything we've ever seen, this war on truth. And then I think we saw over the past year just how damaging it really is. And I don't, I don't think the damage is yet fully accounted for. Yeah. yeah it's, it, and look, you know, we, Trump, Trump isn't gone. We've gone through a lot since even the time that you turned in the, uh, <laughs> the final version, January 6th, January 20th, and all the rest. Um, uh, wow. It, it, what, a, what a ride and what a story you tell. Uh, I'll plug the book one more time, John, because I know we love oh. to do that for the books. It's called The Front Row at the Trump Show. It is now available in paperback edition. And and I, furthermore, I am going to close out the show because now I'm the host because John's just a guest today. That's good. So this is what I do. Uh, you can catch John. He's doing a lot of publicity all over the place. Be on The View, all these, all these great places. He's doing a lot around the book. So buy the book. In the meantime, that's all the time we have here on Powerhouse Politics. Special thanks to Trevor Hastings, Adia Robinson, and the whole massive Powerhouse Politics team. We'll be back next time.